I was in a meeting last year and I got a text message. It was pretty direct. It said, Graham Piper has died. Many of you will know Graham uh, from his time here at Dural. This news came as a total shock to me. I was uh, speaking with him only a few days before. He was recovering from knee surgery, but there wasn't any indication that something was going wrong. But these things happen. And I had this text, Graham Piper has died. It's a total shock. So, well, what do you do as a minister? You take a deep breath. I left the meeting. I collected my thoughts and I called Graham's daughter. She was a little bit more animated than I'd anticipated, but you run with it in these situations. You let the person on the other end of the phone set the pace. So we swapped a few stories. We had a few laughs. I expressed how grateful I was and thankful that I'd been able to spend time with Graham. I counted him as a friend. And we were wrapping up the conversation and she interrupted me. She said, you know, Dad's still alive, don't you? (laughs) Clearly, the wires had been crossed and just quietly pretty badly at that. And I'm pleased to confirm Graham is very much alive and appropriately led our Resurrection Sunday service this morning at eight (laughs) o'clock. Graham is alive. Graham is alive. We can all take a deep breath. I'm not pretending Graham's experience in any way resembles the experience of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. But like all analogies, this example, it has some usefulness, but it also has some limitations. Not least, Graham isn't actually dead. So there's that. Nevertheless, there are some parallels in the experience, at least for me anyhow, between Graham's experience and what we heard from John chapter 20. Although I'd not seen with my eyes, I had the report, Graham is alive. I had the report from a trustworthy source, Graham is alive. What do I do with that information? It doesn't fit with my expectations because I'm expecting Graham to be dead, but I've been told he's alive and I've not seen it. But a credible witness has told me. And so I believed. But in the passage we just heard, and despite Jesus' teaching that these events would take place in advance, exactly as they are now unfolding, Thomas had a very different reaction to the news he received. Actually, I reckon Thomas would fit in well in modern Australia. I reckon you could put him on just about any highbrow talk show like Q&A, or for that matter, you could place him in the beer garden at the Vicar and a debate that goes on there too. Because he is so typical of the sceptical age in which we live. That determined refusal to believe in the evidence regardless of its credibility. Unless I see, unless I touch, I will not believe. Of course, some of us might admire the approach that Thomas takes. His demand for facts, his refusal to go along with the crowd, even if... Those people are his closest friends, trusted sources, in other words. Unless I see, I will not believe. It's a statement of will. I will not do it. It sounds so rational, so sensible. It sounds so reasonable. And yet by the end of this encounter, confronted by the evidence he so boldly, rudely, demanded. His willful unbelief will disintegrate before the resurrection authority of the Lord Jesus. Put your finger here, see my hands. 
Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. I don't know what tone of voice Jesus used when he spoke like this, but it would have been an electrifying moment to witness, don't you think? Unless you're Thomas. And while it's true Thomas is being reprimanded, what we have here is the loving discipline of the good shepherd. Jesus seeks out the one disciple. He's firm with Thomas, but he's kind. He's forceful with Thomas, but his goal is reconciliation. And we know that Jesus' goal is reconciliation here because he repeats himself three times. That's always a good indication. Here's the point. Verse 19, verse 21, verse 26, Jesus makes the same invitation over and over. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. We often attach significance to people's last words, don't we? Those considered words that people speak at the end of their life. Well, here we have the first words of the first person whose resurrection has both been foretold and now fulfilled. Jesus says, peace be with you. What does it mean and why does it matter for Jesus to speak like this? Well, we'll get to those questions in a minute, but before that, we've got another hurdle to overcome, and that's that when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, nobody saw it coming. In Luke's account, we find the women preparing spices because they expect to find Jesus' body in the tomb. Just before the section Mia read to us in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene mistakes the risen Jesus for a gardener. As for the disciples, well, they hardly inspire confidence. They're huddled together, verse 19, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leadership. They're worried that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. With some justification, they're worried. These are not the actions of people joyfully awaiting Jesus' resurrection. But then again, in fairness, they probably didn't expect Jesus to die in the first place. Only days before this, Jesus had received a king's welcome as he came into Jerusalem. But now, almost inexplicably, Jesus is dead. That's a lot for these people to take in, in a short period of time. Especially when you consider that for the previous three years, by his words and actions, Jesus has been acting in God's world with God-like authority, leading people to wonder, could this be the one? Could this Jesus of Nazareth be the long-awaited Messiah? But he can't be, at least so far as the disciples are concerned, because... Well, a dead Messiah is a defeated Messiah. And that brings us to verse 19. And I want you to notice here how careful Jesus is to reshape our faulty expectations. On the evening of that first day of the week, so this is the first Easter Sunday, when the disciples were together, minus Thomas at this point, and minus Judas who's gone as well, With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, that tells you something about their mindset, doesn't it? What happened? Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hand and his side. 
And we expect dead people to stay dead, don't we? That's the kind of typical trajectory. Someone dies and they stay dead. I think that's uncontroversial to say. My wife, Rachel, is an emergency doctor. She's resuscitated loads of people. But I can tell you for fact, no one has ever been certifiably dead and made their own way out of the morgue. It doesn't happen. Jesus knows how difficult resurrection is to believe, which makes it all the more important to point out Jesus does not expect anybody to believe without evidence. He doesn't expect you to believe without evidence. We're taught to think that faith and facts are opposites. You have facts, I have faith. Jesus invites us to put our faith in the facts. And to that end, verse 20, to prove he's the same Jesus that was crucified just a couple of days ago, he showed them. Here it is. This is the rational presentation of fact. He showed them his hands and sighed. Having repeatedly taught in advance that he would die and rise, as advertised, here he is, with a recognisable, if scarred, physical body. The disciples are overjoyed, even if they didn't fully understand, but for some unexplained reason, Thomas wasn't there. So, verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, I'd stick with Thomas, Didymus hasn't really taken off yet, but hey, there's an opportunity. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. We don't know why. He just wasn't there. So the other disciples told him, okay, this is important now. This is important because here we have eyewitness testimony from 10 disciples. We have seen the Lord. So think of it because evidence is building We have the testimony of the women. Remember, they were the first ones at the tomb. We have the testimony of Mary Magdalene, who physically took hold of Jesus. And we have the testimony of the ten. Speaking as one, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I reckon this would have been a pretty frosty kind of conversation. And the graphic nature of Thomas's demand suggests to us that he didn't really think Jesus could possibly rise from the dead. He actively rejects the testimony of trustworthy people. People who in many cases are going to preach the resurrection of the Lord Jesus to their own detriment, many of them will be persecuted to death for doing so, and yet they held on to this belief. So while we might agree that evidence is required for belief, we should note Thomas has plenty of evidence. Evidence is not his problem. His problem is the stated unwillingness to believe. Unless I see, I will not believe. He doesn't put it this way, but in effect, what Thomas is saying is, Jesus, you must meet my expectations of proof. You answer to me, Jesus, when it comes to belief. I want to suggest at the very least that's bold. Anyhow, a week goes by. Would have been a long week, I reckon. Just imagine the tension between the disciples. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, well, that just got awkward, didn't it? You remember back at school, the whole class is mucking up, everyone's having a great time, and then the teacher calls you to attention but uses your name. Maybe I was the only one. I don't know. That's my experience. What was going through Thomas's mind? If I just stand still, maybe he won't notice. But as awkward as this moment would have been, did you see how Jesus begins the conversation? He could have shaken the finger. How dare you speak like that, Thomas? Shame on you for your unbelief. And that would have been quite justified, by the way. Instead, Jesus begins the conversation, verse 26, peace be with you. It's a reminder. Jesus hasn't come into the world to condemn people. He's come to save them. He's come to make peace with God. He's come to bear our sin at the cross. He's come to give his life as a ransom for many. He's come to absorb the punishment for sin that was ours. He's come to give us a clean slate, a fresh start. Do you want a fresh start with God? Because I'll tell you, I do. Peace be with you. To his credit, to his eternal credit, when confronted by the risen Jesus, Thomas doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't offer an explanation. Humbled, he accepts the reality, my Lord and my God. You might know the name John Dixon. He's an author. He's an historian. He puts it like this. When it comes to Jesus' resurrection, we have exactly the kind of evidence you'd expect. Eyewitness testimony, early and widespread written reports from multiple sources. And in cases like Thomas and Saul, we find sceptics changing their minds. Sceptics change their minds in the face of evidence. A cynic, it doesn't matter how much evidence you put forward, they'll never believe. Thomas changes his mind. Now, look, I'll admit, we can't place ourselves in Thomas's situation. This is, by its nature, an unrepeatable, one-off event. However, God has inspired and preserved these first-hand reports that reveal to us, that testify to us, Jesus is alive. Reports that are consistent with what Jesus promised and reports and testimonies from people who gladly declared Jesus' resurrection even under persecution. And in this particular report that we have from the disciple John, he signs off like this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. In other words, many are, but not all of them. But these are written, what's the purpose? so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The good news of Easter is that while we don't deserve it, and although we cannot earn it, Jesus offers you peace with God. Do you want a fresh start with God? I know I do. By the sin-bearing death of his son, you're invited to receive the forgiveness of sins. By the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, you're invited to share in his promise of eternal life. All this offered to you as a gift.
But like any gift, it needs to be received. Peace with God. It's the best promise you'll ever hear. Or maybe you've still got questions, and if so, I invite you to join us at our next Christianity Explored course. Listen to Jesus in his own words. Watch him in action. Weigh the evidence. Make up your own mind. But then again, maybe you're ready to respond like Thomas now. Maybe you're ready to believe. Well, with that in mind, I'm going to pray a simple prayer that's for everybody, whether you call yourself a Christian or not. And I invite you to say this prayer in your own heart, that we all together might have a fresh start with God. Why don't you join me as I pray? Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Heavenly Father, I want to recognise today that Jesus Christ is my King. But being truthful, I've not lived with Jesus as my King. And for that, I deserve your judgement. But Father, according to your unfailing love, because your Son paid the price for my rebellion, would you forgive me? Cleanse me and would you change me? We thank you for the gift of forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. Would you teach me from now on to live a life worthy of my Saviour? Father, would you hear our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord? Amen. Happy Easter.